As we enter into our our sermon portion today, let me read uh, the passage for this morning from Matthew 5, 27 to 32. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in her heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Let's pray for Patrick. Uh, this morning, I was reflecting on uh, uh, a story. Patrick, yes. Can the kids I'm sorry? Can we the kids? Oh, yes, we can dismiss the kids. <laughs> Thank you so much. Good. Appreciate that. Looking for an excuse to not start this sermon anyway. <laughs> In 2003, Aaron Ralston was climbing in Utah's Blue John Canyon. Maybe some of you are familiar with that story. There was a movie made out of it. Uh, He was climbing alone, completely isolated in a remote area, when he slipped and fell and a rock shifted and a boulder crushed his hand between a a rock wall and, and this boulder. And he was stuck. He was stuck there for a long time, and there was no one to help, and he had no way of getting out. There was nothing that he could do to remove his, uh, to remove himself from the situation. And he realized that after six days, he was going to die. He was going to die of hypothermia or dehydration, whichever one would take him first. And so he made a decision that I don't know how many people could possibly make. He made a decision to use a multi-tool that he had in his pack to sever his right arm. It was his only way of surviving. And I saw a YouTube video of him talking about the experience, describing how he did it in detail, And he described how as he was finally able to get through the very last of what was holding him there and what was left of his arm fell free. And I quote, it was the happiest moment in my life. (laughs) Does this seem crazy? How could that be the happiest moment of his life is my first thought. He did what it took to be free. He did what it took to have life 
And even though it was a, a ridiculous cost to him, it's the happiest moment of his life. This morning, as we approach this text, Jesus gives such an illustration in terms of the purity that he calls us to have as followers of Christ. What would we be willing to do to have the, the purity, the freedom to live the kind of life that God is calling us to live? I'd like to pray this morning over this passage and just commit this time and our hearts and souls to the Lord. Father, thank you for speaking to us about real things in life. Uh, this passage is one that uh, um, it is, it's difficult for a lot of reasons. And Father, I pray that this morning you would just guide us, shine your light to help us understand what we should, help us not to misunderstand, and help us in all of it to see the gospel to see the gospel of hope, the gospel of salvation, gospel of forgiveness and reconciliation. Father, we commit this moment to you, and I ask that, uh, that you would leave us with uh, whatever you want us to, to hear from your word and your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. This passage is broken into two sections. I'll take the first one. First, God's call to remarkable purity in our hearts. Um, Coley just read this passage. Um, I'll read it again, the first part of it. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. It's kind of the surface level rule or barrier. But I tell you, that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And then he goes on about, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Same thing with your right hand. He gives details that are vivid and personal. We all have eyes. We all have hands. We can relate and imagine what he might have meant what he might have been talking about. You know, this is one of, another example here of where Jesus is inviting us to a deeper heart-level conversation. We have the surface-level conversation of the rule not to break, but then we have what God wants to be happening down in a heart level in our soul. And he's talking to us about that today, giving us a specific context for it. You remember that he's taught us about, he's taught the Beatitudes, the remarkable attitudes that we have when we know and follow Jesus in his kingdom. And now he's explaining how that can apply in a specific situation in our life. Last week, James, thank you, James, for, for opening the word with us last week. Um, James looked at the passage where Jesus said, don't commit murder. Well, okay, don't murder. But he said, you know, there's a whole nother under the surface level thing going on. That if we have hatred toward our brother, we're murdering them in our heart. And now he just takes one step over to say, and don't commit adultery. You've heard that. You know that. But there's a heart level issue that we need to talk about. And what he's doing is he's calling us back again, I, I believe, to the Beatitudes. 
Don't murder someone in your heart, but blessed are the peacemakers. Don't commit adultery in, with your thoughts and your lusts in your heart, but rather blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. You know, when we leave things on the surface level on a rule, it's just so easy to, to not, for that not to be spiritually beneficial. When I was in youth group, we were told really strongly, you know, don't have premarital sex, right? You, you don't do that. You know, wait till marriage. And so we all thought, okay, well, what does that mean specifically? And then if we don't do that, what can we do? Right? And so we, could, we had all this freedom, right? And it had nothing to do with the purity of our hearts. Where God was longing to meet with us and give us life inside. It was all about what, what might someone get away with or what's right and what's wrong. Jesus is calling us to something so much better. And so he does it. He makes sure that we understand the seriousness of it by giving us these very graphic images about our eye and our hand and about plucking out our eye or cutting off our hand. It's, it's, uh, they're intense images. I do want to say I don't believe that he means us literally to actually remove an eye or hand. And it's important to say. Um, I don't think he means that. I mean, can you imagine if you were in charge of recruiting greeters for the greeter ministry? And we only have about four guys left in church with the right hand to reach out and shake hands. That would be really bad. Um, I don't think that's why. I think what he's doing is he's saying, I'm going to make this I'm going to make this so that you can't misunderstand this is serious. I want you to take your purity seriously. When you think about those two parts of the body, the eye often represents what I see or what I desire, what I want. I wish I had, right? And then the hand can easily represent what I reach out to take. And I can take something that isn't mine to take. And he's wanting us to address these areas of what we desire and what we take. And to have purity in these areas of life. He's calling us to stop taking what isn't ours and stop looking at and desiring what God hasn't given to us. Now, clearly, culturally, they didn't have the internet back then. And it's a huge factor for us as we talk about these things today. They say that almost 7 out of 10 men in an evangelical congregation like this would have some level of struggle with internet pornography. Some level of addiction struggle going on. And um, close to 3 out of 4 women it's not something that's talked about a lot in the church. It's not a very pleasant conversation. But I think it comes into play as we look at how do we apply what is happening here. I've talked to a lot of men over the years who have some level of struggle. And what I have found in general is that there are some willing to do kind of a whatever it takes to find purity and freedom. But there are often most while they struggle, they know they struggle, they don't like that they struggle, are really unwilling to take concrete steps 
to, do, to take seriously this call to purity. And Jesus is calling us to take it seriously. There's examples in the Bible of people who struggled with this as well. We don't have to have the internet struggle with uh, lust, do we? When we look in the Old Testament, we see a guy named Samson in the book of Judges. Samson was the strongest man on earth. And yet uh, he said this, this is a quote from the book of Judges. I have seen a woman, a Philistine woman in Timnah, now go and get her for me. <laughs> he said that to his mom and dad, and they, and they did. Isn't that crazy? D- don't give your kids sinful things. <laughs> I wonder, but he was the strongest man on earth. They, were, they, were not, uh, they didn't feel very in control at that point in, in time. But he saw with his eyes a Philistine woman. He desired, and then he took. Something didn't belong to him. And, this, and that caused tremendous trouble. And I want to be clear, the Philistine woman didn't cause tremendous trouble for Samson and Israel. Samson's sinful desire that he acted on caused tremendous trouble for, for Israel. We can also look at the life of David. And we remember the, the time in which David looked from his balcony and sees a woman who's bathing on a rooftop. And he saw and desired her, and then sent for her, and took her. And again, you know, who's, who's to blame? You could say, well, she shouldn't have been bathing on a rooftop, but the responsibility falls on David. He saw, he continued to see what he shouldn't see, and then he took something that didn't belong to him. And David's sin led to all kinds of problems for Israel. And David is said to be a man after God's own heart. His godliness didn't prevent that sin. David's son Solomon, he saw and took so often, he ended up with 900 wives and concubines. What? And and he was said to be the wisest man on earth, the strongest man, most godly man, and wisest man in the Old Testament all struggled and failed in these areas. And I do also note, when I thought about all three of those, that all three of those men had tremendous power, and they abused their power in order to desire and take something that didn't belong to them. Men today don't have a whole lot of that kind of power that they had, but we have the false illusion of power if we sit behind a screen thinking we're hiding behind anonymity, anonymity and we can still take whatever we want and struggle and, and feel like we're not doing something as bad as they were. But the trap is real and the struggle is just as significant. I'm encouraged, though, when I look also in the Bible, I find some good examples. I find a man named Job. Job was struggling and the people were going, like he was in all this affliction, if you've read Job. And his friends are like, well, Job, you must have sinned. And Job is saying, no, I haven't. Not only have I not committed adultery, but he says in in Job 31.1, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. He's like, no, I, I addressed this early and I've been faithful. This struggle is something else. I'm encouraged by that. 
Because it is possible to have an agreement with the front door, with the eyes, not to pursue a lust that can cause problems. Also, we see the example of Joseph in the later part of the book of Genesis. He was a servant in Potiphar's house. Every time Potiphar would head off to work, his wife would throw herself at him, and he didn't stop to pray or do anything like that. He ran. He ran out because he was committed to his purity. It landed him in prison based on false accusations, but he was committed to his purity, and he walked with God. Similar to Paul in 1 Corinthians 6.18 when he said, flee from sexual immorality. I think one of the struggles that we as Christians have had with addiction and pornography in the church is that we have oversimplified the problem. And statistically, by the way, Christians are not doing better than non-Christians. Evangelical Christians are not better, meaning less addicted, than non-Christians. It's the same. And I think we failed to, to look at the complexity sometimes of what's involved. Um, when, when men are struggling with a porn addiction or women are struggling with it, it is a moral problem. It's sin. It's sin every time. But I think to just tell someone, hey, that's sin, stop it. Don't sin. Is, is to, under, to misunderstand the complexity of what's going on because there's also an addiction issue going on in many cases. And that involves the brain and the way the brain has been restructured. It involves a lot of other things that need a different kind of help. We need to have an admonishment against sin. We need to have a help for someone who's overcoming an addiction. It's a relationship problem because it's affecting and impacting the people around that person. It's not just one person's thing. And it would be good for the church to help address other impacted people. And it's also a spiritual problem. Because God's part of our life every moment of every day. And God would call us to keep him in mind as we, as we fight for our purity and the church should be able to be well-positioned to address all of those different levels of struggle. You know, our, our hearts are important to God. God desires us to be holy. Have you ever just wondered, why did the Lord give humans sexual desire? Because it, it so often leads people into all kinds of problems. It leads us into all kinds of traps or problems or, or bad choices. Why did God give that desire to people? I think it's, it's a good question. I heard one time that God didn't give us desires like that to make us happy, but he gave them to us in order to help make us holy. And as we look at the struggle that that so many have, I just want to remind us that when, when sexual desires or desires for intimacy come up in Christ, we have something better. We have something more. In Christ, unmet needs and desires are opportunities for us 
to draw closer to him. If someone chooses not to have a cheap substitute, but to sit with an unmet desire, then they're poor in spirit. They're experiencing being poor in spirit. They can experience uh, mourning. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. They can, from that place of feeling unfulfilled at that time, can have the opportunity to experience being meek and being merciful and being pure in heart. All of which Jesus says are attitudes that God sees, adores, and blesses. That's different than the message you get from the world. It says you deserve to be satisfied and fulfilled, so do it however you want to. God is calling us to find fullness, wholeness, and satisfaction in him. We may not be used to doing so, but that's our call. And it's deeper and better than anything this world has to offer. So Jesus has addressed the importance of purity of heart. And then he takes these next two verses to address the importance of purity in marriage. And he says in verses 31 and 32, It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery already. Uh, I'll just say what I think we all know. This is difficult to address. It's difficult to say one thing to a room full of people who've all had different experiences, knowing that almost everyone here has been impacted in some way by a broken marriage, by a divorce. Maybe your own or your parents or a siblings or a friend or someone that you've known. And they're all painful. I just want to acknowledge that that's real before we even talk about what Jesus said. You know, we reflect back, all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, when God first talked about marriage. He, he put Adam uh, there in the garden. Um, and then it says in Genesis 2, start, starting in verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. And the Lord caused Adam to fall into sleep, took one of his ribs from his side, and made a woman. And then the man woke up and said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. So the biblical design goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, is one man with one woman as one flesh for life. That's been the common belief of the church for a very long time because it's rooted in the Old Testament. It's, ama it's an amazing blessing to us, and yet oftentimes the world twists that around. 
And when we say one man plus one woman is one flesh for life, that's viewed often as somehow overly restrictive or punitive or sometimes even as a, a hateful approach or I don't understand this one fully, but that's somehow phobic of something else. If we, if we have such a narrow view of what marriage is. And yet what's missed in that is that God's design for marriage wasn't to be restrictive on people. It was to be a blessing. It's to be a blessing for raising children. It was to be a blessing for ourselves to experience community in a unique way that God has called us to do. It's a way for us to experience God's presence in a close relationship as we grow together. So it's important first to acknowledge it, but Jesus is talking here about what can break the bond of marriage. What can break the bond of marriage? And I want to say that the Bible talks a lot more broadly about that than just what Jesus says. We're, we're just acknowledged we're looking at two verses right here. And so he's talking about one specific component that's found just in two specific little verses. Um, when we look at all of Scripture to see what, what breaks that bond of marriage, we actually see about, as I understand it, three different things that can do that. One of them is quite common. It's the, the idea is death. <laughs> death breaks the bond of marriage. So every marriage in this room will be broken by death, which, by the way, death in this world is a result of sin. And we'll all experience that, and that, that ultimate result of sin will break every marriage in this room. In 1 Corinthians 7.39, Paul said, A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, then she's free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. Death breaks the bond of marriage and frees uh, the, the, left, the person who's left to marry again. Uh, they're not bound to never be able to marry, but in God's eyes, that's, they're, they're free to do that with his blessing. The second thing that can break the bond of marriage is desertion by an unbelieving spouse. In 1 Corinthians 7.15, the same chapter, Paul said, If the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. So two people are there married, one comes to Christ and gives their life to Jesus, and the other one says, you're crazy. I'm not going to stay. You're, you've joined a cult. You're nuts. I'm not going to stay with you. And they leave. According to Scripture, then that person is free to find a believing partner and, and have a new life. Now here's where it gets complicated. When we define things too narrowly, people get stuck. And I just want to, I don't have all the answers, but I do want to just say there's, there's other struggles. Like what happens when you have two people who say they're believers, but one is acting like a non-Christian all the time, maybe even in a way that's violent or abusive? Should the other have to stay in that marriage or are they free to say, I don't think they're actually a believer? I guess the best I can understand it is this is where the church comes into play 
and the elders and the godly elders and of the church to be able to say, as we've assessed your situation, it's our determination that that person's not a believer. And that would be part of what would be a call to repentance, a call to spiritual discipline that could result in that kind of declaration. It should be removing someone from membership. It gets complicated, but the Bible gives us some mechanisms we don't often use that can help someone not just be continually victimized by someone who might say they're a Christian, but shows no evidence of it at all. And maybe this passage about desertion by an unbeliever comes into play here. I'm not saying yes or no or evaluating any specific situation, but that God's word gives us quite a bit of different guidance. And we need each other to help discern when life gets hard. And these passages are largely designed to protect people from being harmed, not just to make sure someone does right or wrong. And the church has a role to come in and help apply them in ways that are good for people. It's complicated. But when Jesus addresses this here, he's really only talking about this third thing that breaks marriage. So he's only talking about one specific slice of the issue. And he's talking about adultery plus formal divorce. When he says, it's been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality or marital unfaithfulness, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries the divorced woman becomes a victim of adultery. This goes back, by the way, so let's put this back in the biblical context of what Jesus is talking about. It goes back and it's anchored in Deuteronomy chapter 24, where Moses gave permission for divorce. In this passage in Deuteronomy 24, the first four verses, he, Moses said, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and he writes her a certificate of divorce, I mean, it's crazy when you look back at the words that Moses used. A man leaving his wife because somehow she became displeasing to him. And, and it's helpful to understand what was happening back in that day a man was mistreating his marriage commitment. He would tell his wife, I don't like you today, or you cooked a bad meal, or whatever, and throw her out for the rest of the day, or the week, a month, or a year, knowing that at any point in time he can say, get back in here. And she was bound. And so she could, and in and, and that day, if a woman is thrown out, she can't just go get a job and support herself. She's, she's homeless. And so he, a, a man would use that, I'll make you homeless and destitute, or you'll do what I want. It was a terrible situation. So Moses was saying, if you're going to throw your wife out the door, then you send her out with papers so that she's free to go find a good man who will actually take care of her. You can't jerk someone back and forth like that. That's what Moses was doing. But the people had interpreted it 
by Jesus' time is this, hey, we just we can, we can get divorced for any reason, any time. And Jesus is bringing it back to the original intent to say God's intent is for purity. God's intent is that we would have purity in our hearts and in our marriages and that we wouldn't mistreat each other. And so he was saying if, 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 if there is a, an immorality, a marital unfaithfulness, by the way, the word that he used is the word that's way less clear and specific. <laughs> he didn't use a really clear word that would just draw a clear line. He used a very generic word. It's very difficult to know exactly what he had in mind. But I think maybe a way to summarize it is to say, if a man goes to another woman and acts, treats her like she's his wife, then he's violated the marriage covenant. Or if a woman goes to another man and treats him like that's who she's married to, then they've violated that covenant and really left the person who's behind a choice. One of two things. That doesn't break a marriage bond in and of itself. They have the choice. They can forgive and restore the relationship. Or the other choice is they can make a divorce official and say, I'm going to make what you did official. You did it. I'm just going to make sure that's declared officially so that there's an official break and freedom to find someone who's a godly person to be together. I think that's the heart of what Jesus is getting at. Are you still with me? Am I just, whew, there's a lot, a lot here, but I, I just do want you to know, as I see it, and again, to acknowledge this is, this is hard, this is personal, but as I look through what Jesus says, in the context, the main goal is finding ways for us to live godly attitudes in our hearts, and in our closest relationships. And in a context in which God's heart is to love and protect his people. Not to leave them abandoned. Not to leave them abused. But to provide love and protection and care. God wants to nurture remarkable purity in us. And so he's given us some of these guidelines to help us do it. I hope that makes sense. I hope that you hear that. I think that's really important. And so I'm going to just leave it with a few challenges for us. Just four simple challenges that, uh, that I take away from this passage. And the first one is take purity seriously. The purity in your own heart and the purity of your marriage. Take that seriously. Um, in this world, that's become kind of a joke. I mean, it really has. You can't get on any kind of any online social media. You can't watch a football halftime show. You can't, uh, you can't go to a movie. You can't see anything that's being produced by non-Christians and realize purity is a joke. And, and that's before us all the time. 
And so we need to pause and say, what does it look like for me to take it seriously in my heart? And what does it look like for me to honor my marriage and take that seriously? The second challenge to us is is to get into what I'm going to call heart-level accountability. Uh, We talked about this in a community group the other night. Um, There's accountability groups that stay on the surface that we can find. You know, you can find another Christian guy to ask, you know, did you do this or did you do this this week? You know, that's fine. There's a place for that. But find heart-level accountability. Find someone who will shepherd your heart and lead you back to Jesus. And keep bringing you back to the life-giving gospel of Jesus Christ. So we can say, how did you do this week? And what's going on in your heart that would lead you to struggle there? And how can I bring you full-heartedly and bring, help your affections to fall back on Christ? That's the kind of accountability that's helpful um, to nurture and foster it. Number three, work on building a healthy marriage. Take some work and prioritizing. It's easy to neglect, but work on that. And then number four, remember grace. Just remember grace. God doesn't condemn you or me every time we sin. I don't know why. He's holy. He could, but he doesn't. Remember God's grace to you. Remember God's grace to your brothers and sisters around you. And and help one another. God's called us to extend that grace to help each other. There's not one person in this room that can change our past. But every single person in this room can grow in our affections for Jesus today. Let's help each other do that. Let's help each other to develop by loving Jesus more, remarkable purity in our hearts. Father, thank you for your grace. Um, It's a really difficult passage for us to wrestle with today. But, Lord, I'm so thankful for your faithfulness, for your grace. I'm thankful that every, as it says in the, uh, in the Old Testament, that your, uh, your love is new every morning. Your loving kindness is new every day. That as you look at us, our sins are washed away by the blood of the Lamb. And you're changing our hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. And you put us together, Lord, to do it together. So help us to just seek your grace, to seek your your. Uh, our purity before you. And I'm thankful, Lord, that you long to bless these attitudes that you describe for us in every situation of life, even the ones that may be particularly challenging. So, Father, we just, uh, just open our arms to you and trust ourselves again to the loving hands of our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.